The Bible tells us that one day Jesus was walking with His friends. And He asked them a question. He said, who do people say that I am? And as you might imagine, there were a lot of different opinions about who Jesus was. And they said, well, there are some people who say that you are John the Baptist, come back from the dead. And there are others that say that you are Elijah, come back from heaven. And then Jesus asked his friends, those who had traveled with him, those who knew him best, those who had lived with him, they had eaten with him, they had watched him perform miracles, they had heard his teachings, and he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, was the one that spoke up, and Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded to Peter, and he said, on this rock, this rock of confession that you have made, I will build my church. In other words, there will be something entirely unique about Jesus' people, and it begins with an understanding of who he is, an understanding that changes how we see ourselves. And the word that Jesus used there is, is very particular. <clears throat> he says, on this rock I will build my church. And when Jesus used that word, he wasn't referring to a building. He wasn't referring to an organization. He wasn't referring to a, a set service at a given time on Sunday morning. He was talking about his people. The word church means his gathering, his assembly, his people who are called out from all the other people. Now today, as you know, there are still a lot of different opinions about who Jesus is. A lot of people will answer that question, who do you say that I am, very differently. Some people say, well, he was a great historic figure. He was a, he was a great leader. He was a revolutionary, they'll say. Or, or they'll say, well, he was a myth. And they say that there's a lot of good stories, but none of them are true, and they, they don't really believe in him. But, but one thing I've noticed, whether they believe that he existed or not, or that he continues to exist or not, they, they will agree on this. He was a good teacher, and he taught a lot of good things. And when they talk about love, and when they talk about forgiveness, they say Jesus was a great example of what love and forgiveness is. And that's, that's wonderful. But what Jesus told his friends that day was, if you truly know me, there will be a distinction about yourself. There will be a distinction between who you are and the rest of the world, between what you believe and the rest of the world believes, and between how you live and how you are recognized. He says, you will be my church, and you will live a life that is called out from the rest of the world. I'm afraid sometimes that we've missed that. And we've made the, the word church mean a lot of different things. We say things like, are you going to church? Or have you been to the new church? We'll say things like, which church do you go to? Or what time is church? Or how long do you think church will last today? We, we, we make those kind of comments and we use the word church in ways that Jesus never intended for it to be used. And 
what we've missed is that this word is about relationship. Jesus was saying, this, this church, this is my people. They are distinct, and their beliefs in me, what they believe in me impacts who they are together. They are mine. They are my church. They are called out. Last week, we looked at what we believe about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, and we saw some wonderful things about who Jesus is, that He is the image of the invisible God. We saw that He Himself is God. We, we saw something of His power that by Him and through Him and for Him, all things were created, and that there's nothing that was created that was created without Him. But like Jesus says to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. I will build my people, my community. It's not just about what we believe, but what that belief does to us. That belief forms the basis of a relationship with Jesus. And it's a relationship where, first of all, He offers Himself to us. We're going to look at just three verses today. Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23. What we saw last week was this incredible picture of who Jesus is, and that picture culminated in His relationship with us. Verses 17 and 18 that we looked at last week says, He, that is Jesus, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. That in everything He might be preeminent. He might have the supremacy. He might be first. If He's first in our lives, it's going to be seen in what He brings first to this relationship with Him. So we pick up in verse 21. Paul says, And you, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. This relationship points to a very big, very visible change in our lives. He says, once you were alienated from God, but now something different has happened. You are reconciled to God. Once you were hostile, he says, but now you are holy. Once you were doing evil deeds, but now, he says, you are blameless. And you and I might be tempted to say, well, I got better. You know, I grew up and I, I stopped acting the way I used to act. I, I stopped doing stupid things and, and I grew up and I got better and I made these improvements. But, but we know that's, that's not true. We know it's not about us. It's about what Jesus brought to this relationship and what He offered. He offered us Himself. In this relationship, in His love, Jesus offers us reconciliation with God. Once we were alienated from God. We were hostile and doing evil deeds Paul says he offered this reconciliation in his body of flesh by his death. That's the price of our relationship. That is grace. And the question is, what do we do with that? How do we honor that gift? And what Paul goes on to show us here is something that we already know, and that is that every relationship that we have comes with responsibility. Every relationship comes with responsibility. We know that already. When we get married, 
we pledge our responsibility to each other. That we will do these things, we won't do those things, we will show responsibility to one another. When you're a parent, uh, you have responsibility to your children. When you're a child, you have responsibilities to your parents. When we work together, we have certain responsibilities to each other. We have responsibilities to the company that we work for. We have responsibility to the people who work for us. We have responsibilities. Every relationship comes with responsibility. But for some reason, when we start talking about Jesus, we stop talking about responsibility. And we just talk about grace. Because grace is amazing. And grace is wonderful, and, and we know we can't be perfect. We can't live up to the responsibilities that we ought to have. And so we just say, well, we're just going to rely on His grace. So we tend to leave responsibility out. Paul has just spelled out the life-changing effect of grace. And then he follows it up with a pretty big if. There's an if in this passage. I want to read it again, starting again at verse 21. Paul says, and you, the church, you Christians, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And we say, thank you, Lord. We say, that's amazing. That is grace. We never could have done that on our own. And then we read the next verse. If. There's an if there. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. <clears throat> a lot of people don't know what to do with that if. I, I've read a lot of books in the last week or so as I've looked at that if. And I've read a lot of people who've tried to explain that if away. They, they come up with all kinds of excuses as why that if is there and what that if doesn't mean. And, and they, 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 they try to explain it away. But I think if we look at it like any other relationship, we have to ask what happens if I stop keeping up my side of the relationship? What happens in marriage if I stop loving my wife? What happens as a parent if I stop taking care of my child? What happens as a child if I stop that relationship with my parent? What happens if as a worker I stop doing my job? Do I have any right to believe that relationship will continue if I don't keep up my side of the relationship? He has now reconciled us with God if we continue in the faith. Sometimes we think of faith in kind of a nebulous, cloudy sort of a thought, and we think of faith as something that we have. You know, we, we, you got to have faith. You're going through a tough time. Oh, you got to have faith. You, and, and we kind of use faith the way we use the word hope. You know, I, I hope these prayers get answered the way I want. I hope things work out. You just got to have faith. But when Paul uses the word faith, he's talking about something a lot more concrete and a lot more foundational to who we are. He talks about not just what you believe, but what you do with that belief. How is your faith lived out? How is your faith practiced? 
faith isn't just about what you believe, it's about what that belief does to you. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches to the crowd on Pentecost, and about 3,000 people respond and are baptized and are added to that church that day. What did those 3,000 people do with this new faith? That they had. Well, according to Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. They devoted themselves to something. That's what they did with their faith. This This isn't a popular thing to say these days. It really doesn't seem all that popular, but but our faith involves us doing stuff together. Our faith involves us being plugged in together. Our faith involves us being here. I can't tell you how many times I've heard it. I can tell you the first time I heard it, but I, but I won't. But I, I can tell you, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. Someone will say, I can worship God just as well next to a lake on Sunday morning as I can in church. Has anyone ever heard that? You ever heard someone say that? I can worship God just as well next to a lake on Sunday morning as I can in church. You know, the funny thing is no one's ever invited me to their lake. I don't know if if I'm not lake people or something, but no one's ever invited me to that lake. No one's ever told me what time to be at the lake. And no one's ever told me what that lake ever did for somebody else. No one's ever told me about the missionaries that that lake supports. No one's ever told me about the funeral dinners that are held at that lake, that the people who go to that lake get together and they put those dinners together and they help a grieving family. No one's ever told me about the, the, the meetings at that lake uh, for people who are struggling with addictions and who are people who are struggling with people who are struggling with addictions. No one's ever told me about the, that kind of support. No one's ever told me about when they were hurting and when they were dealing with cancer And the people from that lake brought them food and prayed for them week after week. No one's ever told me about any of those things that that lake has ever done. And and I'm not arguing the fact that, yes, you can encounter God by a lake or you can encounter God over here on a golf course and all these other places. But do you hear the inherent selfishness of that statement? I can worship God just as well. And in that statement, I'm not concerned about you worshiping God. I'm worried about what I'm doing and not what my fellow Christian is doing on that Sunday morning. I'm not arguing that that you can encounter God in those places. What I'm trying to say is what we do here is important. And what we do here is essential to the mission of the church and to to our faith as individuals. Jesus said, upon this rock, upon what you believe in me, upon your confession, I will build my church. And the word church means called out. It means I will build my assembly. I will build my gathering. If you're not gathering with the gathering, then are you part of the gathering? If you're not there, are are you there? 
There was a story that happened about a year ago, and I want to do something with this story sermon-wise one of these days, so I'll just try it out on you guys today. Do you remember last year there was this thing called the Super Bowl? Did you see it? You guys may have heard of that, right? There's a Super Bowl. Have you noticed how good TVs are getting these days? How much, how much clearer the picture? I mean, you, it's like you could just walk right in. And everybody's got these gigantic TVs these days. And so something happened on Twitter last year uh, that I, I noticed, and a lot of people noticed it. There were a lot of people posting pictures of themselves at the Super Bowl. But you know what they were doing? They were standing in front of their high-def plasma TVs with the gigantic 60, 70-inch screens, and they were taking pictures of themselves with the, with the game in the background. Now, I've got to ask you, were they at the game? No. They weren't part of the gathering, but they wanted to claim the benefits of being part of the gathering. They wanted to claim that they were there, but the reality is they were just home standing in front of a TV trying to get that picture lined up just right, make sure there's no glare, and make you think that they were there. If the church is the gathering, and if, if you're not gathering with the gathering, are, are you part of the gathering, or are we just pretending? Are we just taking those selfies to make it look like we're a part of the gathering? For many of us, church has become secondary. Church is something that we do when it's convenient. And yet, over and over again in the Bible, we see that gathering is important to our faith, what, what we do as individuals and what we do as a group. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 21. Hebrews 10, 21 says, Draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Full assurance of faith. And I read Hebrews 10, 21, and I think, how do I do that? How do I have full assurance? How do I have this concrete and solid assurance of faith. And not just something where I, I believe it might be true, I hope it's true, I've got to have faith. How do I have full assurance of faith? Two verses on down. Three verses on down. Hebrews 10, 23 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us consider how to stir one another up and encourage one another to love and good works. Can I do that by that lake all by myself on a Sunday morning? Or do I need to be with other people to do that? He goes on and he says in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. <laughs> Back in those days, some were in the habit of, of not getting together. Well, you know, it's, the weather's too bad today, I'm not going to go. Or the weather's too good today, I'm not going to go. Or, you know... I, there are sick people there who are coughing through the whole thing. I, you know, I'm not going to go. You know, what? Not neglecting to meet together as, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Coming together, encouraging one another. It's not just about you. It's about us. Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. That is our big if. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Now there's another half to that if. 
that goes on in, in verse 23. Not shifting from the hope of the Gospel that you heard. And it's a reminder that I can do all the right things. I can be in church week after week. I can pray all the prayers I'm supposed to pray. I can devote myself to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I can read my Bible. But in the end, it's all about His grace. It's about what Jesus has done for me. That He saved me. Not that I earned it. Not that I've done things to deserve it but rather that I have responded to Him. Every relationship comes with responsibility. Have I shown that to Jesus? So Jesus asked His friends, who do you say that I am? And Peter responded and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, this confession, this confession that you've just made, this understanding of who I am and what I offer is the foundation for my church. A short time later, if you're reading Mark, it's the very next chapter. If you're reading Matthew, it's about two chapters on ahead. But a short time later, a man came to Jesus with a question of his own. We call him the rich young ruler or the rich young man. And this rich young ruler came to Jesus with a question and he said, what must I do? What one thing must I do to inherit eternal life? What can I do? What, what can I show you? How can I, what can I offer you? How can I earn it? And when Mark tells the story, Mark says Jesus looked at this man and loved him. Just like Jesus loves you. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Just like Jesus loves me, this I know or the Bible tells me so. Jesus looked at this man and, and loved him. And Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the Bible says that this young man walked away sad because he had great possessions. He had an if. And he walked away. Every one of us as an if that demands a response. If we believe Jesus is who He says He is, what will I do with that belief? Will I allow it to be foundational to who I am and uh, what I do and where I go and to the people that I belong to? Or will I walk away? And maybe I don't walk away all at once. Maybe I walk away little by little piece by piece, week by week, but still I walk away. Paul says, as he wraps all this up, he says of, of this good news about Jesus, he says, um, he says, the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. He's exaggerating just a little bit, but he was a Roman and he, he had earned the right to exaggerate a little bit. But he says, it's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister, of which I became a servant. Everyone's heard about Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. Everyone's heard about Jesus. Everyone believes something about Jesus. The question isn't whether or not you've heard about Jesus. 
The question is, what did you do with that belief, and what did that belief do to you? Did you believe? Did it change you? And does it continue to change who you are? Let's stand together and pray. Father, we love you. We love the way that you love us. We love the way that you love us through your Son. Lord, grace is amazing, and and we could not begin to even come near you. Lord, Paul says we were hostile. Uh, We were alienated. Um, We were doing evil deeds. But when Christ came, he came to reconcile. He came to love us and to offer himself to us. Lord, it would be wrong of us not to look really closely at the if in our lives. Lord, you've given us so much. And you just ask that we give ourselves back to you. But Father, this week, this day, let us consider what we've really offered you. Have we offered you our entire lives? Have we just offered you one day a week? Have we even offered you that? Father, I pray that we'll encounter the big if in our lives and that the love that we've known through you will cause us to give ourselves completely and totally, 100% over to you, just as you gave yourself to us through your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.